0: This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. With well, that being said, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful book written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we are to hear the very voice of God as we read these words to us. And as you make your way to 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm not sure about you, but I've had, I've had several near-death experiences. I think that comes with the territory of being an idiot. Um... My, my, my kids love when I tell the, these stories where I almost died. They're like, hey, Dad, tell us about that time where you were so dumb that you almost died. And I have a whole laundry list of, uh, of stories to bring up with them. One of them was when I was hiking in Glacier National Park in Montana. Now, I was out with a group, so this story doesn't just involve me being an idiot. We were all being idiots. Um, but we were getting ready for the hike, and it was super hot outside. It was the middle of August in Montana. And, you know, out west, they like to say, oh, it's just a dry heat. It's just a dry heat. Let me tell you something. 110 degrees is hot. It doesn't matter if it's dry, wet, whatever. Like, that will melt your face off. And so if you're from the west, like, I really don't want to hear about your dry heat anymore. It's hot out there. I don't know why any human being should live in 110 degrees weather. It was, it was hot. And so we packed for hiking in super hot weather. What was dumb was that we failed to check in with the ranger station on the trail to see what the weather was like at the mountain that we were about to summit. You see, we were getting ready to climb from about 5,000 feet to about 12,000 feet. And in case you're wondering, weather can change drastically based upon your elevation. And we were about to find that out the hard way. We were hiking and the first day goes by fine. Maybe get a little chilly towards the night, but no big deal. The second day, we're, we're getting closer to, to, to the summit. Uh, really, we had one more day before the final push. Um, and, and as we get towards the end of the day, it starts to snow. Probably about 9,000, 10,000 feet at this point. Um, and so we're like, okay, let's, let's just set up camp and hunker down and wait this out. I'm sure it can't be too bad. Um, how, many, how many times were those famous last words, it can't be too bad? The middle of the night, I wake up with the tent having collapsed on my face. One of the poles had broken because there was so much snow on top of it, about 18 inches at that point. The rest of the night, we got up in shifts, taking time to bang the snow off the top of the tent so that it did not keep falling down on our faces. We woke up the next morning to almost two feet of snow. In case you are wondering, hypothermia is a real thing. And I will spare you the details, but it was really nothing short of a miracle that we were able to get off the mountain and not have any frostbite take our fingers or our toes. We had not been prepared, and it led to almost disastrous results. In our text this morning, we're going to see God speaking to us about a way that we need to be prepared for this life. We're actually just going to be looking at one verse today, we're going to be picking up the pace soon. But, but today, we're just going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And this verse really is a, is a pivotal verse in this whole book. It acts as a summary of all that Peter's been saying so far, and, and then turns us forward into what is going to come. And since these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, we are to read these words as God's speaking to us today. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Exiles, a spiritual warfare, a spiritual warfare. Now, by spiritual warfare, I don't mean the type of spiritual warfare that you might see coming out of a Hollywood horror movie with people climbing on, you know, the ceilings and heads spinning around. No, this spiritual warfare that we're going to read about today is is far more subtle and far more insidious, but it is something that God does not want to leave us unaware of. It's something that God wants us to live life prepared for. Let's read 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Would you bow your head with me now in a word of prayer? God, as we come to your holy word, I pray that you would speak to us today through it. That the Holy Spirit which inspired these words would now come and open the eyes of our hearts. That our hearts might see what you have to say to us. Lord Jesus, correct us where we need to be corrected. Encourage us how we need to be encouraged. I pray that by the end of our time today, that our joy in you might be made a little bit more full, that you might be glorified through the great delight we take in your good word to us. Lord, please build your church today through the preaching of your word, that you might be glorified and that the enemy might be horrified. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at three things this morning in this one verse. We're going to look at the peril of our passions. Then we're going to look at the power of our identity. And then finally, we're going to look at the practice of our awareness. So point number one, heading number one, is the peril of our passions. Peter gives a clear command in verse 11. He says, abstain, which abstain means to stay away from. Don't go near. Get as far as you can in the other direction. He tells us to abstain From the passions of our flesh. What are these passions that we are to stay away from, that we are to abstain from? Well, passions of the flesh is a fairly common phrase throughout the New Testament. In the book of Ephesians, the writer Paul describes what the state of humanity is by saying this Ephesians chapter 2 We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The passions of our flesh are the things, the feelings, the wants that can take place in our bodies and in our minds. And so the passions of our flesh are really being led by our appetites. If we want it, if we feel it, we do it. That's living by the passions of our flesh. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5, he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now as we read through that list, I'm not sure about you, but some of those things sound very familiar. Sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality, also known as tinder and hookup culture. Maybe even your browser history on your smartphone. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, also known as Twitter, or cancel culture. Most of what you see on the news. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. It's being manipulative, playing politics in the classroom or in the workplace to get ahead at someone else's expense. Envy. I think we call that TikTok and Instagram. They are envy-feeding machines. Most of social media is about trying to get you to want what others have. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. It's the party scene, the local bar scene. These are all examples of living according to the passions of our flesh. And in the ancient Roman culture, they saw the ability to indulge your passions as a sign of your social power. And so they would have feasts. And in the middle of the feast, they would would actually be eating so much that they would take something that would allow them to empty their stomachs so that they could then feast some more. The poor were starving out in the streets, but these people were just indulging and gorging themselves on food. The, The elites were known for their parties that would often have sexual orgies. Sex was rarely kept in the Roman culture between an intimate act of of a husband and a wife in marriage. No, in that culture, the more sexual partners you had, the more variety of partners you had, the more powerful you were. And so when Peter says here that the passion of the flesh should not be indulged, we need to understand in the ancient Near East culture that he's writing this into, that would have been seen as crazy talk. And I think in our culture here today, it's also seen as crazy talk. Our culture has been widely influenced by a man named Sigmund Freud, which is interesting because most psychologists I talk to say Freud's theories have been largely discredited, but he still holds sway in public thought. Freud theorized that we have three parts to our personality. The most important is our libido, or our it, if you will, which he defined not only as our desire for sex, but really our desire for pleasure as a whole. And, And so for Freud, and this really is the key, repression of desire, is the basis for all neurosis. In other words, the reason you're unhappy or unhealthy is because people are telling you to not do what you want to do. According to Freud, the only way to truly thrive is to give full expression to whatever desires you find within yourself. In other words, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Let it go, let it go. (laughs) Be true to you, follow your heart, you do you. In our culture, we're told that freedom is doing what we want, when we want it, however we want it, and with whomever we want it. The air we breathe in our culture is indulge, indulge, indulge the passions of your flesh. But here God is telling us that is not freedom, but is actually something that is harmful to our soul. The passions of our flesh are not our true selves being actualized, but is actually something in us that is waging war against us and is perilous to us. These passions are perilous to our souls. How so? Well, when we live based on our desires, when we're defined by our appetites, whatever they might be, we're being defined by something less than who we are in Christ. Theologian Karen Job says it this way, the soul, commenting on this verse, she says, the soul that is the target of spiritual warfare is not to be understood as referring to the incorporeal part of the human being in distinction from the body, but the whole self, its new identity in Christ. The soul is not just some kind of immaterial part of you, it is all of you. Body, soul, and spirit. That's, it's all who you are. It's all that's being referred to here. And the peril of our passions is that they're undermining the, the, real, the real truth about the power of our identity. That's what Peter is saying here. He's saying that we are made for more. We are made for more. We are made for more than just being animals who are led by whatever we feel in a given moment. Animals are completely governed by the passions of their flesh. Wolf sees rabbit. Wolf chases rabbit. Wolf eats rabbit. Wolf never considers, maybe I should eat a salad today. Like, like they don't sit down and consider their menu options. No, they're just driven by their animalistic desires in their hearts. Birds fly south for the winter. They don't stop and think, man, I've been going to Santa Fe every single year. I really want to check out the scene in San Diego. You know? They don't think about these things. They're just driven by their instincts. Animals live based upon what they instinctually feel, which was actually the point of Freud's theory. He says, we're just animals, and so just embrace it. Just be your desires. But God speaks into that and dignifies us by saying we were made for something more. So let's look at point number two, the power of our identity. Peter does not just say, stay away from the passions of your flesh. Don't do that. No, he grounds his exhortation in reminding us who we are. Verse 11, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. What he's saying is you're not from here, so don't live by the desires that you get by being here. You're not of this world, so don't live for the desires of this world. My wife and I, when we honeymooned, we, we honeymooned in Mexico, uh, which was 14 years ago this past Wednesday. We just celebrated our 14-year anniversary. Glory be to God. Thank you. We went to Mexico, and and something they told us in the plane, something they told us at the airport, something they told us at really millions of different signs around the resort. If you've been to Mexico, I'm sure you've seen this, is don't drink the water. They say it again and again, don't drink the water. Now, the locals could drink the water. They've built up a tolerance over time to the toxic things that are in there. But for us, we'd be laid out sick by drinking that water. We weren't from there, and so we couldn't drink like the locals who were from there. And so because of our identity, we need to abstain from the water. Peter's saying, you aren't from this world. You are an exile. This place is not your true home. You are a sojourner here. You're only passing through. So because of who you are, don't indulge in these things. And not just who you are as a sojourner or an exile. But he says, remember who you are as someone who's been loved by God the, the reason you are a sojourner in an exile is because you've been beloved he starts by saying this in verse 11 beloved I earned you as sojourners and exiles our identity as sojourners and exiles comes from the reality of us being loved by God we are sojourners and exiles here because in God's great love for us he has adopted us into his family we keep coming back to this again and again in almost every sermon because it's so foundational to what Peter's saying throughout this letter. He keeps bringing us back here. It's the very first chapter in, the very, in verse 3. He says again and again, God in his great mercy has caused us to be born again. The reason that we are exiles is because we are not people who are just born from the seed of Adam and Eve, our first parents. No, no, we're not just people of this world. We've now been born again. We have new parentage. Our Father, God, is not from this place, and therefore, as those who have been born again into his family, were like him, also not of this place. And the reason that we've been born again is because we are beloved. God loved us, and so in his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And so the uncomfortability that comes from feeling out of place in this world, if you've never felt out of place, then... Perhaps you should consider, maybe you're a little too comfortable. Maybe you're not living the way that God's called you to live. Maybe you've gotten too comfortable living in a culture that's not meant to be your home. The uncomfortability that comes from feeling out of place in this world, friends, it's not a sign of God's absence from us. It's actually signs of God's presence with us and his love for us. And not just a little bit of love. He doesn't say you're loved by God. He says you are beloved by God that word means you are very, very much loved. And The Parent Trap, which is one of my favorite movies growing up, the the girl's mom said that she left the dad to see if he'd follow, to see if he'd come and and he'd fight for her. She said, I left 11 years ago, and I'm still waiting for him to fly across the ocean. Now, I think it's a silly thing that she did that. (laughs) But I do know that there's a part in all of us that we want to be so loved by someone that they're willing to fight for us. Friends, you need to know today that you are so very much loved by God. That He has fought for you, and not just by flying across an ocean like that. Dad in the parent trap had to do. No, He came at the cost of His own life to fight for you. When our sin had us shackled, when we were living as slaves to our passions, chasing desires that never fulfill living empty hopeless and helpless and maybe not even aware of it like sin can be blinding we can be lost and not even know it but our God came and he fought for us when the Roman governor Pilate asked Jesus why Jesus wasn't fighting to save his life Jesus said it's because I came to lay down my life for our life of sin God's justice requires that he take back our life. The wages of sin, what sin earns from God, is death. But while God hands down that sentence, he also then comes down and takes that sentence in our place. This is his great mercy. As the whips of the Roman soldiers descend on Jesus' back, and the blood began to fill his eyes, as the nails pierced his hands, putting him on the cross, and as his lungs collapsed and he couldn't breathe, and the judgment of God for our sin descended upon his soul, Jesus never said enough. He never said stop. He didn't save himself because he had been sent by God to fight for you. That's how loved you are by God. You've been fought for with the very blood of Christ because you are his beloved. That is your identity if you placed your faith in Jesus. Back in college, a really popular Christian song to sing was Oh, How He Loves Us. It was a song about God's love for us, and I'll be honest, I didn't like singing it. I was like, man, that, that song just seems so me-centered. You know, like, I want to sing songs about God's greatness, not about God's great love for me. And Now, it is good so- to sing songs about God's greatness, for sure, totally. But I think if I was being honest, really what's going on, I was feeling pretty uncomfortable thinking about God's love for me. I, I think in all of us, there's a little bit of insecurity, which is part of why we so easily listen to our passions. We want to feel loved, but we doubt that we are loved. And so think well, if I just do this, then I'll feel loved. if I just embrace sexual immorality, then I'll experience intimacy. If I just get drunk, then I'll be more happy and more people will like me. If I pursue this idol, whether it's a career or a relationship, but if I have that thing or that person, then finally I will feel fulfilled. We can look for love in all kinds of places. But if we are looking for it outside of God, friends, we are looking in the wrong places into all our insecurities about love, friends, God doesn't mind singing and talking and telling us to sing about his great love for us. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Zephaniah three seventeen: The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you, mean give you peace by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Jeremiah 31 3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 1 John 3 1 How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Psalm 86, 12-13 I give thanks to you, O Lord my God with my whole heart I will glorify your name forever Why? For great is your steadfast love towards me Friends, if you have placed your faith in Jesus then you need to know today God loves you oh how he loves you and he wants his love for you to be so great to you that it becomes what to find you. God, God is inviting us here to not find our identity in our desires, but to find our identity in him as his beloved. Living based on the fleshly desires we have, like an animal who has no control over their instincts, that is not freedom. We were made for more. We were made to be set free from just living according to our passions. We were made to instead live based on the identity we have as the beloved of God. Freedom is not being able to do whatever we want. No, that is slavery according to God. Chasing desire after desire. Cue all the stats on burnout and depression and anxiety. Chasing our desires is an exhausting way to live. God wants his love to set us free. I don't have to chase the desires in me, but I can live for the joy of following God. His way is life. His way is true. His way is best. His way is good. His way is beauty itself. I had a friend who rescued an abused dog. The poor thing was so malnourished and was afraid of its own shadow. I mean, if you just looked at him, he peed. Or he'd snap and he'd be aggressive. He had built up these instincts that were not ultimately healthy or for his good. And the dog was a slave to these things. He wasn't living in freedom. But was shackled to his behavior that had been created by the brokenness that he had experienced. But over time as my friend petted him and fed him and was patient with him and took him for walks and just just loved on this dog, that dog's behavior began to change because now he knew he was loved. My friend's love set that little dog free. And that dog followed my friend around everywhere, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He knew there was no love like my friend's love And so he was loyal to my friend. He listened to my friend. He didn't live based on his former instincts, but instead lived based upon the affections he had received. My friend's love gave that dog a powerful new identity. Friends, God's love gives us a powerful new identity. We are not those who have to indulge the passions of our flesh. We don't have to listen to our hearts. We can listen to something that is greater than our hearts. We can listen to the voice of the God who loves us. Which says to us, our desires are not what defines us. It's his love that defines us. One of the biggest challenges that we have in our recovery ministry called Transformation to Recovery is that so many people who battle with addictions have given up and really just begun to embrace an identity of being an addict. I can't tell me how many times people said, this is just who I am. I might as well be true to myself and stop fooling myself that I can change. Let me ask you, how does the cultural mantra, you be true to you, work in that counseling situation? I can tell you it doesn't. That's why I think it's a lie from the pit of hell to keep people in bondage. You being true to you has nothing to say to someone who knows the truth about the passions and where it can lead them. But God's word has something very powerful to say. God's word is something very powerful to say. God's voice tells us that we are not the passions of our flesh. That is not our identity. We are someone who is beloved of God. And so God tells us in his love that no matter how strong your flesh is trying to pull you, it does not have to define you. Freedom is being able to not listen to your heart, but instead embrace your identity in Christ as the beloved of God. It's a war out there. It's a war in here. It's a war in our hearts. Which identity are we going to live in? C.S. Lewis talks about this war this way. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before and take your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing, to the one state or the other. What he's saying is, is, are we gonna be people who based upon our choices live in the beautiful love of God following his voice? Or are we gonna be people who more and more like animals live just just based upon the passions of our flesh? There's a war that's being waged in our souls. We're gonna listen to God's voice Are we going to listen to ourselves? One leads to beauty and joy and harmony. The other leads to death. Death of the soul forever. I'm not sure, friend, what your battlefield is. I'm not sure where the places in your life where those that, that comes into conflict. I, I don't know where the passions are trying to pull you, but I do know that we each day wake up in a war zone between the passions of our flesh and our identity in Christ. And so this text is inviting us to live not based upon the pull of our passions, but instead based upon the beauty of the love that we see in Jesus. In order to fight the perils of our passions and then to live in the power of our identity, We actually need to engage then in the practice of our awareness. So, Like we are talking about living in the power of our identity. What does that mean? How how do we actually do that? That's where we're going to close today. Let's talk about the practice of our awareness. By awareness, I mean this reality of the identity that we have in Jesus. How how do we keep this identity fixed in our minds when when that war zone comes creeping into our hearts? What's interesting, studies in neurobiology show us, and you can actually go ahead and Google this. You know, take my word for it. But studies in neurobiology show us that when thoughts enter our minds, they create neural pathways in our brains, which create DNA proteins in our nervous systems, which are then disseminated throughout our bodies, and they actually become a part of us. We literally become what we think about. What's interesting is that the Bible said that long before neurobiology discovered it. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, We all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory, another. In other words, we become what we behold. Become what we behold. If your life is about beholding your smartphone, scrolling through your news feed every single day, if that's what you do the first thing in the morning, that is going to begin to make you become what you are beholding. God wants to give us other things to help us become more like him. And so as you study the life of Jesus, we see Jesus giving us several key spiritual practices. That are meant to help us keep our awareness of Him and who we are in Him. And so, having key healthy spiritual practices in our lives, friends, as I go through this list, I'll make sure I'm not just trying to give you a list of like do's and don'ts. No, healthy spiritual practices are a means of God's grace, whereby we are kept aware of the beauty of God's love for us and who we are in Him. Th- these things help us to behold Him so that we might become more like the one that we behold. So uh, very briefly, I'm just going to go over five quick things. First, first practice that we see Jesus teaching us and the Bible teaches us repeatedly is to read the Bible, to read the Bible, to study God's word. Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? In other words, how, how can he abstain from the passions of his flesh? By guarding it according to your word. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Jesus, when he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, quoted God's word to him and said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is spiritual food that we we're meant to take into our lives on a daily basis. What we put into ourselves will be then what comes out of ourselves. What we put into ourselves will inform and shape how we think about ourselves. So I should be, we should be thoughtful about our media intake, and we should be intentional with our Bible intake. And so if you're wondering, man, your, your, your point here, if to like talk about the beauty of God's love, is to just read your Bible more. Um, I was joking with actually a member of a church. That's actually the application of every single sermon I have. Just read your Bible more. Um, and I don't feel bad about that because, you know, every year, the legendary football coach, Vince Lombardi, if you know anything about him, he's won more championships than anyone. It's who the Super Bowl trophy is named after, It's the Lombardi trophy. Every year, he gathers his team together, and these were professional football players. They were champions. I mean, they were the best of the best. There was no free agency back then, and so they just stayed on the same team and just kept getting better. Um, but he'd start every team practice at the beginning of the year the exact same way. Again, with these professionals, these elite professionals, he'd say, gentlemen, this is a football. And He'd take out a football, and he'd begin to explain the basics of how to play the game of football. Why would he do that? He'd do that because we get in trouble when we start to take things for granted. Friends, we should never take God's word for granted. Yes, we need to read our Bibles. Yes, we need to read this on a daily basis. And if you've been coming out to church for a length of time, I'm sure you've heard that before. But we're going to continue to repeat it because I need to be reminded of it. So I assume that you need to be reminded of it as well. When you wake up in the morning and there are a million notifications on your smartphone, when there's an inbox full of to-do things to do, and you're like, well, I'm just now a morning person. Well, how's it working out being a night person and reading your Bible at night? Um, so, like, how do we start our day, Right? Like, we we need to say, I know I'm being basic here, this is a football. But friends, we need God's word. Because God's word, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it is breathed out by God. As we read these pages, we should be feeling the breath of God coming onto our faces. We're communing with him. We're hearing about who he is. Now, I want to encourage you, just think about reading the Bible. Uh, Don't just read haphazardly. Like a few verses here, a few verses there. Just kind of open your Bible and read to some random page, or I would encourage you not even to like have an app on your phone. One because anything to you anytime you open your phone, like let's just be honest, there's a million other distractions on there. And number two, like reading one Bible and then reading someone else's thoughts about that, like reading one verse, like that's good, that's helpful. But like God wants you to know Him for Himself, not just someone else's relationship with Him. He wants to have your 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 own relationship with Him. So don't just read one random book uh, or, or one one random verse. No, read read systematically. Have a plan and go through the plan. I'm going to put up a few plans in our blog tomorrow. Grab one of them. Start doing them. God will meet you in it. How do we behold Christ? We we see him in Scripture. Second, we pray. We pray. Again, I know, this is a football. This is so basic. But we need to hear it. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to pray without ceasing. Romans 12.12 says, to be faithful in prayer. Throughout the Gospels, the biographies in the Bible about Jesus, what do we see Jesus doing regularly? We see Jesus regularly praying. And I think praying and Bible reading go hand in hand. See, in the Bible, we hear God's voice. In prayer, we speak back to God. It completes the conversation. And so as we read Scripture, we should then think about, how can I prayerfully send this Scripture back to God? I was reading the other day, Psalm 23. I'm sure many of you know it. The Lord is my shepherd. So I started praying, God, thank you that you are present with me. You're my shepherd. You're here. Thank you that you've not left me to wander this life alone. Thank you that you want to be a shepherd who safely guides me. Help me to trust you. I can be so tempted to listen to other voices. Help me to listen to the voice of my shepherd who loves me. I'm just reading scripture, and I'm praying it back to God. Friends, these things, as we do them, they help us fix our minds on God and who we are in him. Third, fasting. Fasting. I think fasting is actually one of the more neglected practices that Jesus gave us that we don't talk a whole ton about. I, I won't be honest with you, it's probably one of the things I need to grow in the most in my life. But Jesus regularly talked and modeled the sacred practice of fasting, which wasn't like going without TV for a few days. Right, that's great, like if you want to kind of unplug and do those things, that, that that's fine. That's not fasting. Fasting is not eating food for a certain period of time. When Jesus went into the wilderness at the start of his ministry, how did he seek to prepare himself for the ministry God had called him to do? He fasted. He fasted. Up until the 4th century, it was the normative practice of the Christian church to fast every Sunday and every Wednesday. It's just, it's just what Christians did. I'm not saying we're going to bring that back, but I'm saying that, like, there's a long history here. Fasting is really a psycho-semantic act in the true sense of the word. It's built around this biblical theology of the soul as your whole person. See, contrary to what we assume here in the West, your soul, again, it's not the immaterial part of you. It's not the invisible part of you. It's your whole person, which includes all of your body, your brain, your nervous system, and your stomach. And so fasting is a powerful ally in our fight against the flesh because it actively reminds us that we're more than our appetites. It's a physical reminder that what's most important to us is our identity in Christ. And so when we refrain from food to give focused attention to our relationship with him, right, we, 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 we fast, and then a lot of times what we do in fasting is, is we should then use the time that we're normally eating and spend that extra time in praying. In scripture, fasting and prayer often go together. And just to let you know, it's not because fasting kind of clears your mind. If you've ever fasted before, it doesn't clear your mind. It's actually incredibly distracting. Uh, hunger pangs are a real thing. But those hunger pangs are a constant reminder. Every time we feel that pang of hunger, we're reminded of the deeper longing that we have in our soul for truth and beauty and love, all of which are better in Jesus. So I encourage you, consider making this part of your lifestyle. Pick a day. Let's say it should be every week. I'm say it should be every month. But just pick a day. Start with a day. Start with just one day. Don't try. I'm not going to be like, Jesus, I'm going to do the 40-day thing. Don't start with 40 days. Um, Pick a day and try it out. Fast, Especially, I would say, if you're really battling with certain passions of your flesh, maybe sexual morality or some kind of addiction, fasting is a powerful way for you to be reminded of your identity. You are not your passions. You can say no to food. You can say no to that. You can be sustained by God. And so I'd encourage you to consider adding that practice into your life. Fourth, confession. Confession. Jesus' brother, James, says this in James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a pastor from Germany who lost his life during the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. And in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. Sin grows in the dark. but it dies the light. And so when we confess our sins out loud to people that we know and trust, that helps break sins hold on us and can bring healing to our souls. And notice here that James says confess your sins to each other. This isn't a private thing between you and God, nor is it some obscure thing between you and some priest that you never know and will never see again. It's confession to trusted friends who can encourage us, who can walk with us in life and remind us of our identity in Christ. So if confession is not a regular part of your life, I know that sin is, it is mine. And so confession should be a regular part of our lives. If sin is part of our lives, then confession of sin should be part of our lives. Bring it out into the light so that our souls might continually be healed. Finally, fifth practice would be the practice of community. Jesus did not call a disciple to come follow him. He called disciples. He created community because he knows that we need one another. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. How do we take care? How do we, how do we keep ourselves from this unbelieving heart? We exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, by ourselves, when we live in isolation, and I've seen this time and time again, by ourselves, we do not do well. When we isolate ourselves, when we're not present physically with people on a regular basis, people who live by themselves never end up doing well spiritually. I've seen it time and time again, walking through a very sad situation right now, Isolate themselves, not been around for a while, and it's like, yeah, I think they've begun to have their minds shrunk because we are created to live in community. We are created to live in community. Being together with other Christians acts like a preventative against the hardening effects of sin. There's unique spiritual encouragement that comes from us being together this is why Hebrews 10.25 commands us, and I think sometimes we, we forget that this a command, but commands us, do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Church is not an optional activity that we fit in as we can. It's a spiritual necessity that we need for the good of our souls. We need our small groups. We need our Bible studies. We need our digging deeper classes. We need this Sunday service. We need to have friends into our homes and into our lives. Like We need these things. So we might do what Ephesians 3 tells us to do, and that is build us up in the love of God. That's what we're meant to do to one another. So what being together is meant to do. The more we're together, the more we build ourselves up in the love of Christ. You want to know if you're loved, spend more time with other people who are loved by God and enjoy his love together. So as we come to a close here, friends, God's inviting us into a deeper life than just living by the passions of the flesh which can never satisfy our souls. God's inviting us to live our lives shaped by his love. He doesn't want us to be like me on that mountain in Glacier where we're caught unprepared by the danger that our souls face. No, he wants us to realize that there is a war, a war for our personhood. Who are we going to be? He wants us to live in his love to know that we are made for more and to embrace the full satisfaction that comes from the powerless identity of being loved by God in Christ. And so, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which are waging war against your soul. Let's bow our heads in prayer.